Welcome to the last episode of the Agora podcast for 2020. My name is Nick Malkutsis. I'll be hosting the final outing of the year with Phoebe Fronista. Are you ready to wave off this year, Phoebe? I am so ready. (laughs) (laughs) Our final show for 2020. Well, it essentially writes itself as the last major event of this year is Brexit. (laughs) Don't worry, Phoebe, I'll bite my tongue. Um, Obviously, there's loads of analysis about the Brexit agreement struck between the UK and the EU just in time for Christmas, but we wanted to add a Greek twist to the discussion. Because after all, this, this is a podcast that doesn't just delve into developments in Greece. We also look at the things going on around us, which affect us in profound ways, and Brexit is one of those. That's right. The reverberations of the agreement proclaimed by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson on Christmas Eve will certainly be felt for a long time and in many ways. afternoon uh, that we have completed the biggest trade deal yet worth 660 billion pounds a year a comprehensive Canada style free trade deal between the UK and the EU a deal that will protect jobs across this country a deal that will allow goods UK goods and we will continue cooperating with the UK in all areas of mutual interest for example in the field of climate change, energy, security, and transport. Together, we still achieve more than we do apart. We've taken back control of our laws and our destiny. We've taken back control of every jot and tittle of our regulation in a way that is complete and unfettered. From January the 1st, we are outside the customs union and outside the single market. British laws will be made solely by the British Parliament, interpreted by UK judges sitting in UK courts, and the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice will come to an end. Of course, this whole debate has always been about sovereignty. But we should cut through the sound bites and ask ourselves what sovereignty actually means in the 21st century. For me, It is about being able to seamlessly do work, travel, study, and do business in 27 countries. It is about pooling our strength and speaking together in a world full of great powers. 
And in a time of crisis, it is about pulling each other up instead of trying to get back. first part of the show, we'll be speaking to Nikos Skuteris, an associate professor of EU law at the University of East Anglia in the UK. Nikos has been following the Brexit process closely from the very start, and he'll explain to us how the relationship between Greece and the UK is likely to change over the months ahead. Later in the podcast, we'll leave behind the legal frameworks and political wrangling and all that stuff to look at another aspect of the relationship between Greece and the UK. A more romantic aspect, because you've been speaking to Alex Kemp, an Englishman who fell in love with a Greek girl and then came here to travel through the country with his partner. That's right. Alex has captured their adventures and his experiences of the country in a book called Here is Greece. We discuss the book, but also all kinds of other things. Greek shadow puppetry, for instance, Phoebe, of all things. Mm. Films of the 90, Greek films of the 1950s and 60s. Not, we're not talking about Hollywood here, of course. And the repetical music, a personal favorite. Uh, it, it was safe to say it was a world away from Brexit. And I can tell you a very pleasant escape it was too. Oh, I'll bet. Those are great movies. Um, and, <laughs> and in a similar vein, we did try to make the discussion with Professor Skuteris as broad as possible, discussing, for instance, what awakes Greek and other EU students in the UK after Brexit. First, though, let's get his overall assessment of the agreement and what it means for trade, which has been the focus of attention recently. Because we initially spoke to Nikos just hours before the agreement was announced. So we gave him a few days to digest the deal or as much of it as he could. I think it's like 2,000 pages. And we caught up with him again just now to discuss the key elements. So here's what he had to say about the Christmas Eve deal and how it will affect trade. So, Nico... Have you managed to digest both the slow-cooked turkey that you prepared for your family and the Brexit deal? The, the, the turkey was much more uh, easily absorbed and uh, much more tasty and delicious than the, the deal. But uh, of course, I had to also have a have a look uh, at the deal. So let me let me say a couple of things about uh, the deal that was uh, was struck uh, hours before Christmas. Uh, but before I get to that, let me just uh, recap uh, how we 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 got on uh, this deal. So um, so the UK voted the, the UK electorate voted to leave the EU back in 2016, and then uh, in the beginning of 2017, in March 2017, the the whole process uh, of uh, leaving the EU started uh, after the UK um, triggered what we call Article uh, Article 50. Now. I mean, there were many, many twists and turns. And at some moment in uh, November uh, 2019, there was uh, a withdrawal agreement. So the UK and the EU agreed on the terms of the default. So what did they agree? So pretty much they agreed on on, uh, on three things. The first one was um, uh, the, the money, right? So how much money 
the UK owes to the EU, how much money the EU owes to the UK. The second thing uh, was uh, had to do with who takes, uh, who protects uh, the children, uh, who are the children of this marriage. Well, EU citizens already residing in the EU and UK citizens already residing uh, uh, in uh, in the UK. They 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 decided on uh, and they agreed on the state on the status of Northern Ireland. The last thing that they they agreed was to give to themselves the EU and the UK eleven months uh, over uh, and during which they 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 will negotiate and come to to an agreement about the future relationship. Now normally this kind of uh, uh, negotiations uh, take place within approximately forty eight uh, months, so about four four years. So. From the very, very beginning, the fact that they gave themselves only 11 months to negotiate the, the future um, relationship agreement was a very, very difficult uh, mission, a very, very difficult venture. And the fact that they, they managed to, to reach an agreement by itself is, uh, is an amazing uh, accomplishment. It's one of the fastest um, tra free trade agreements ever, ever signed. And, and of course, um, it is very, very important because it, it actually uh, it made us avoid uh, a cliff edge situation, uh, a situation whereby there would be no trade deal between the UK and the EU. And from 1st of January, uh, EU traders uh, that they were, would be exporting the things to the, the EU and EU traders that they would be exporting the things to the UK would be faced with, uh, with very, very high tariffs. It also allowed us to to uh, avoid the situation of a very toxic political environment. So, so there's no real blame game between the UK and the EU. But what did they agree, actually? So the the, the, the goal of the UK was actually to, to be outside of the EU customs union and the single market. What does that mean? It means that the, um, the UK didn't want to be part of this system the customs union uh, of the EU, according to which uh, EU traders sell within the EU market without facing any tariff. But they also, the UK also then want to be part of the single market, which means that they don't want to be part of this system that um, uh, regulates how to actually um, um, uh, uh, create certain products. So the, the kind of regulations that underpin the creation uh, and the manufacturing of products. So they, they, they want to be out of those two systems. But they didn't want also their traders to face any tariffs. And in a way, this free trade agreement achieves exactly that. There is no tariff uh, when the, there will be trading between the UK and the EU. Now, there will be no tariffs with regard to goods, but UK traders that they want to still ex uh, be exporting to uh, the EU, they would have to follow whatever regulation exists in the EU if they want their goods to be actually penetrating and having access to the, to the EU market. So the fact that, that there will be no tariff borders doesn't mean that there will not be, uh, that, that it will be a free pass, if you wish for the UK traders to the EU. They still have to make their goods in accordance to the, to the EU guidelines if they want to actually export them to the EU. The second point is that this is a, this is a very thin 
trade deal. What does that mean? It covers only trading goods. So, you know, potatoes, cars, you name it. But it doesn't cover services. What does that mean? It means that there is no, there is very, very little um, when it comes to uh, provisions that have to do with how lawyers are, uh, UK lawyers are going to uh, exercise um, uh, their, uh, their profession uh, in the continent, the European continent, or how the banks, UK banks, are going to offer their services to the, to the EU citizens. And why is that problematic? Because 80% of the UK economy is about services. So it is, it, it is a deal that um, allows us to have an economic relationship between the UK and the EU, but these economic relations will be very, very thin. It doesn't cover most of the UK uh, economic activity. Uh, and this means that this creates a constituency of people that they would want in the future to, 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 to have a, a, a better and closer uh, access and affinity to the EU. So that's in a nutshell the whole deal. So, and there's, it's so thin, which means that we, can we talk about like who wins, who, who won more, who gained more? Was it the EU or the UK? Or we can't even say that. Um, I mean, it, it's very early days, but what we can say is that, and I think this is um, something that the, pretty much every commentator agrees on, um, both the UK and the EU managed to uh, sufficiently defend their def what we call defensive interests. So they didn't lose, right? Neither the UK nor the EU managed to lose. But it's not an ambitious deal, right? So it is not a deal that actually um, uh, helps them um, to actually uh, develop more uh, their economic relationships. It's a deal that avoids a cliff edge situation. Now, that sounds very EU. That sounds very EU. But, I mean, one has to have in mind also the following that, as I said, 80% of the UK economy is about services and there is nothing about services. While at the same time, the EU is a net exporter to the UK. So the, uh, the EU exports more to the UK than the UK to the EU. And this, is, this, this deal is mainly about exporting and importing goods. So in that sense, the EU is more of a winner than the UK because most of the economy of the UK is not covered by this deal. Okay. Great. Thank you. I'm going to let you go back to your turkey, your leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> So that was Professor Nikos Skoutaris from the University of East Anglia giving his view about the Brexit deal. A piping hot take rather than an oven-ready view, if you will. <laughs> See what I did there, Phoebe? <laughs> okay, so to continue the Christmas feast analogy, now let's go to something that we've been slow cooking. <laughs> ah, very good, very good. <laughs> Um, so as we mentioned, we originally spoke to Nikos on Christmas Eve, hours before the deal was announced. So we're going to play you the rest of the interview now, which was not affected by the last minute developments in Brussels. Here you go.
So, full disclaimer, Dr. Nikos Kuteris, Associate Professor of EU Law at the University of East Anglia, is one of my favorite people in the world. And since our early 20s, we have had a tradition of having Christmas Eve lunch together with our friends almost every year in Athens. But not this year. He is in London, stuck like a lorry driver in Dover. Um, yeah, so my fate is, uh, is, is not as bad as the, the lorry drivers in, um, in Dover. Uh, I'm, I'm in my flat in London uh, this year because of COVID. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're not going to have our uh, wonderful uh, Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve uh, lunch uh, with uh, lots of fuzzo and lots of love. <sighs> Can you tell me just a bit how you have been surviving in general and teaching European Union law to your students that are attending a British university. Do you have to rewrite your lectures every term? I mean, the last slide in a recent presentation you taught about the effects of Brexit on Northern Ireland had photos from Matrix movies, but also <laughs> Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. Right. So, I mean, when um, when the referendum uh, took place back in 2016, uh, it was the summer. So um, I was supposed to start teaching again in September. And at that moment, I have to say that I was quite, um, quite worried that students would just switch off and not be interested at all in the sense that they would say that, you know, the UK will not be part of the EU, so we don't have to study EU law. However, I have to say that because of Brexit, because of the referendum, because of the political repercussions uh, that uh, has, um, Brexit has created, students have become way more interested. And also it's much, much easier to connect what I'm teaching with, uh, with uh, the current events. It's, it's very easy to actually explain to the students what's at stake when they can just switch on BBC and see uh, what is going on. Uh, however, yes, I mean, the, the, there are moments that the, uh, teaching a year law here in Britain is uh, really frustrating, not least because we are in a constant uh, drama, in a co um, facing a constant deadline, and that's why I had the, uh, the uh, Bill Murray uh, movie poster. But also because, you know, it, it is almost impossible to, to, to forecast, to predict what's going on, and that's why I had um, a photo also of the Oracle of Matrix, because, you know, it's impossible to to see what's going to happen and also because social scientists including lawyers we are infamous in not being able to predict the future <laughs> um the the uk was a popular destination for greeks looking to escape the economic crisis in their country over the last decade i i think i may have more greek friends in london than i do in greece now the greek government is trying to entice some of you back but If, if, if there are still Greeks who want to go to the UK to work, will they be able to do so? And how? And also, have you been enticed? You <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't been enticed. That's a, that is part of the, of the answer. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I, I'm not quite sure um, what are the exact plans of the Greek government. Uh, it seems that they, they want to entice people with a different set of skills than mine. So mainly people that have to do something with tech, uh, um, entrepreneurs, and things like that. But uh, um, yeah, it would be great if they start enticing people back to business. Yes. I, I think that would be welcomed by, by, by most of us. Most of us are quite open to, to be enticed. Um, now, 
part of the part of the, the Brexit rhetoric was this idea of taking back control of the, the borders, right? So one of the main uh, aims of Brexit is actually to change the immigration policy of uh, the UK. And indeed, uh, like two or three weeks ago, the, the UK passed, the UK government passed from the Westminster Parliament the New Immigration Act, which uh, says uh, pretty much that free movement of people uh, will stop applying in the UK from 1st of January 2021. So this means that it will be more difficult for uh, EU citizens, including Greece, to come here to the UK to job search. We don't we don't exactly know what will be the rules applying from first of February. It's uh, from first of January. It's uh, it's a bit of a work in progress. The point is that the UK, at least uh, that, that that's the aim, is to will be dealing with. Um, all immigrants in the same way. So there will not be a preferential treatment towards EU citizens. And the idea is that you would only be able to move, uh, to live and reside uh, and work in the UK if you already have a job in the UK. So first you have to get a job and then to move. Now, with regard to tourists, of course, there will be tourist visas. Uh, in the same way that, you know, you can uh, you can get the airplane and go to, to to Mexico and New Zealand and with your EU passport you can actually stay there as a tourist for most of the times three months. Uh, but but uh, this idea that you you can you can come to the UK in order to search for a job that uh, that's not uh, that's not gonna be the case uh, in the future. So. So what about what about all the Greeks that are already in the UK, uh, like you? Greek authorities estimate that there's about 120,000 Greeks living in the UK. What's what's going to happen to them? Yeah, I mean, I, we have to we have to be careful with, with that. I mean, we have to differentiate uh, to, to to distinguish between um, EU citizens, including Greeks, uh, that already reside in the UK. Uh, up until 31st of December uh, 2020, and those ones that want to come to the UK af- after 1st of January 2021. Uh, there are two completely different legal regimes. Uh, one of the issues of the withdrawal agreement was precisely to regulate the rights of EU citizens already residing in the UK and UK citizens already residing in the EU. I, I am, I'm, I'm always uh, stressing the UK citizens residing in the EU because there are people, for example, in Spain or Cyprus, you know, there, there are many British experts uh, that they are non-economically active citizens, uh, pensioners most of the time, and, and it's very, it was very, very important for them to actually to, to, to secure their life choices. So people that have been already residing in the UK or in the EU by 31st of December 2020, they have what we call the possibility to access settled status. What does that mean? It means that their rights, so mainly their right not to face any kind of discrimination, uh, will remain, right? Uh, but they have to register, and the deadline for registration is uh, at the end of June 2021. So if there aren't people listening to us, uh, that they are in such a situation, I would urge them to actually register. Um, there's an app that you can download um, uh, in order to make sure that your rights after uh, the summer of 2021 will continue applying to you. Uh, Nico, uh, another constant flow of Greeks leaving here for the UK over the years has been students going to British universities to study. 
Universities UK estimates the Greek student population at roughly 10,000. What does the future hold for Greek students in the UK? Um, How expensive or difficult will it be for Greek students to study in the UK? Uh, You yourself, you went to study there in 1998. Uh, The first year of tuition fees for EU nationals were around £1,000 a year at all universities. Obviously, the situation has changed drastically since then, but what's the, what's the situation going to be like post-Brexit? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, first, I mean, I, I moved to the UK back in 1999 and I moved to Scotland. Um, and I make this um, kind of correction, not to be pedantic, but actually to, to, to say that when I moved to, to Scotland, it was the year that the Scottish government had decided to actually abolish the tuition fees for EU students. Why I'm saying that? I'm saying that um, for the for aspiring students of British universities, that the first thing that you have to to, to see is what are actually the, the tuition fees that apply to the university that you you want to apply. Because in different regions, so in in Wales, the, the tuition fees are different. In Scotland, the tuition fees are different. There are no tuition fees at the moment. Uh, in Northern Ireland, the tuition fees are different. So, 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 so the first thing that you have to do is to check. Now, as I said, uh, the idea behind Brexit is not to differentiate, to give a preferential treatment to EU people. So in that sense, uh, EU students in the future will be facing the same tuition fees that uh, third country nationals are facing at the moment, which depending on the subject, can be quite high. And so the studying in the UK will become less of an attractive option for EU students when it comes to undergraduate studies, right? In postgraduate studies, anyway, uh, students are paying already uh, tuition fees. So unless, um, like the government in Scotland, for instance, uh, decides differently for the Scottish universities, as they can, the idea would be that um, EU students will be facing um, high tuition fees for, for the next academic year. Hmm. And is there any other way that you think the the mechanics of the relationship between the two countries will be affected because of Brexit? Um, yeah, I mean, so if we go a step back and uh, we think about the EU, we realize that the EU is not just uh, a political and economic union, uh, but it's also um, a, an informal forum where all the member states constantly negotiate and discuss their disputes, their issues of concern, the um, things that they have in common. And clearly Brexit will disturb that. So uh, Greece and the UK will not be meeting in the same way that they were meeting for those, you know, 40 years that they were both member states of the EU. So this by itself uh, would will, uh, will influence the relationship, right? I mean... Greece and the UK do not have that many bilateral issues to solve. So it's not like the situation with Spain over Gibraltar or, or with Ireland over Northern Ireland. But still, um, um, now whatever issues they have to discuss, uh, those discussions will take place on a bilateral uh, basis. If there is an area that I would be interested to see how Brexit is uh, influencing the, 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 the Greece-UK relationship is over Cyprus. Um, let us not forget that 
um, uh, Greece and the United Kingdom are two of the three guarantor states of the Republic of Cyprus. Whenever there are um, uh, negotiations about the comprehensive settlement of the Cyprus issue, uh, Britain is part of those negotiations, at least when the guarantors are involved. And I think that it would make an interesting dynamic to see how the next, if, if we're going to have negotiations, will take place, because two of the three guarantor states will not be part of the EU anymore. It will be only Greece and the Republic, of course, that are, are part of the EU. Whether this would actually influence um, the stance of the UK, uh, and what kind of effect will this have over the the, the always elusive uh, settlement of the Cyprus issue? And Nico, away from our um, uh, sort of bilateral look at things between uh, Greece and, and the UK, what do you think the future holds in general for the future relationship between the e- EU and the UK? I think what we are going to see in the years to come is the UK and the EU being in a constant state of negotiation where they will always be trying to find ways to cooperate, to substitute the the comprehensive EU framework. And as time goes by, I think the UK will continue coming closer to the EU. I'm not saying that they will be reacceding to the EU. But I can foresee, I, I can see easily a relationship that would look a bit like the relationship between the EU and Switzerland, with, where there's always a, a constant negotiation, so they are always in discussion, they always try to find a balance between um, uh, their benefits and, and, and their interests. So I, I think that even if there's a trade deal, it will not be the end of the story. I think that for many, many years, um, uh, they will continue negotiating. Which is actually what has happened in the whole British history. You know, part of the British history has to do with how Britain is seeing itself uh, with regard to the continent. So there you have it, Phoebe. So anyone who's enjoyed the last few years of constant Brexit negotiations can sleep easily. This this will continue for many years to come. Just what you wanted to hear. We want to thank you very much for your insight in this half of the podcast into what's happening with Brexit and what we can expect after the process has been completed. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And I have Uzo here. Just wait. (laughs) Whenever you come. And that's a promise. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Professor Nikos Kutare speaking to us earlier this month about the Brexit agreement and how it may shape the relationship between the UK and Greece over the years to come. Speaking of relationships, let's hear from Alex Kemp, our English migrant of love. As we mentioned earlier, Alex has spent the last few years in Greece traveling around the country and immersing himself in local society, culture and customs. And he's written all about it in a book called Here is Greece. So, here is Alex. (laughs) 
Alex, thanks very much for joining us on the Agora. Uh, thanks very much for having me. Pleasure. I want to start off by uh, looking at your book a little bit. Uh, and my first question to you is whether you intended it as a kind of sort of personal travel log as you went through Greece and discovered the country, or is it perhaps a, a guide to newcomers kind of discovering Greece, trying to work out what the country is all about? Uh, okay, yeah. Um, well, I guess it's a, a bit of both, really. I mean, it's it's my story running through from how I first met a Greek girl to proposing to her on top of Mount Olympus to starting my new life and going from knowing nothing about Greece to, um, you know, peering around the curtain sort of thing and seeing what, what really goes on there. So it's it's kind of my story. But I, I do a lot of travelling in the book. So, of course, I can't resist talking about some of my favourite places and islands and cafeneos and beaches. So, so there is that sort of guide, but, 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 but mainly it's about the, the people I see and the characters and the things that go on in Greece. Uh, I kind of, I kind of see myself as like a, like a camera just recording what, what I see. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it's called here is Greece, but it isn't meant to be like a, an official verdict as if I know what Greece is, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, maybe it should be called, right. Here is my Greece. Um, but it, I'm, I'm not sure anyone really does know what Greece is, to be honest. This is a complex place. It's, yeah, it's a kind of riddle, yeah. And it kind of means different things to different people. Um, right. that, I mean, I, I, I called it Here is Greece because um, when I talk to people in Greece and I'd say, oh, that's a bit strange, that sort of thing uh, doesn't happen in Britain, everyone would always say to me, well, here is Greece. So that, that's where the title came from. Uh, but it's uh, but it's it's sort of meant to be both. It's kind of a personal story and a guide around Greece, I suppose. And just to pick up on something you mentioned there, you proposed to your girlfriend on the top of Mount Olympus. If you pardon the pun, you really set high standards for yourself there. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's a very high, very tough climb, and I, I fell down on my knee, you know, through exhaustion. And I think maybe she got the wrong signal from that. But uh, <laughs> I was going to say, you, you really, you know, made things hard for yourself from that point on. It's uh, <laughs> keep, keeping up to that kind of standard. Yeah, well, yeah, that was my one great big romantic uh, gesture. But uh, uh, yeah, what a place to do it, really. Uh, if you're gonna, if you're gonna join a. Greek life forever, you know, do it in the home of the gods. Exactly. Um, as you mentioned, you do a lot of wondering in the book, uh, which obviously in these current COVID uh, lockdown times can either be a great escape for readers or perhaps a source of fr- uh, great frustration, depending on how you look at it. Um, which place in Greece that you visited on your travels really stood out for you? Uh, well, I, I, I Pretty lucky. I've been lucky since I've been in Greece because um, uh, my wife was doing research for a PhD on, on music games that Greek kids play in the playgrounds around the country. So we travelled all around Greece and I travelled with her on this. And so we went you know, from the north, the Ipidus, the islands, uh, even went to Gavdos, you know, the, the crazy island down south and even beyond Crete, uh, yeah. Athens, Thessaloniki, went to all these places. But... Um, I reckon, I'd say the place that most stood out for me in the travels was uh, Thraki in the, the northeast of the country. Uh, I, I just never knew there was a place like this uh, in Greece, really, this the mix of the Muslim cultures and the Turkish and the Pomakis and 
it was it was just fascinating uh, mosques and churches and different languages it was like a the whole place was like a glorious muddle but it all seemed to to work somehow uh, and I, I mean maybe because it's it's very it's remote and so you don't get so much tourism there I, I found the people there were were really open welcoming the, the real philoxenia there I, felt. I mean more, more maybe than even in Crete I know Crete they kind of think of themselves as the philoxenia people but I think they kind of play up to that reputation a bit you know you're you're always wherever you go you're being told to come and have a rag key and a big hand on your shoulder pushing you into a chair and you're, you're sort of bullying you into hospitality but I found that the Thracians were, were really open and curious and helpful i i loved i loved the exactly well as you mentioned it's it's one of the places that a few sort of visitors to greece will uh, really know about it's not it's not necessarily in your travel brochures um what would you be your advice to people who want to come to greece and get a a taste of the genuine Greece rather than the one they might find in the sort of glossy uh, magazines or the TV adverts? Uh, yeah, well, obviously, marrying someone is uh, is good. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and, I, 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 I was very lucky. So I've, I've got to see you know, lots of Greek life, you know, from, from my wedding to my wife's grandfather's funeral. You know, we get that strange custom where the coffin is open and uh, christenings where they slather the kid all in olive oil and that sort of thing and I even get roped into making olive oil and uh, doing the olive harvest with my father-in-law every November but um, so the I, full I, experience yeah yeah so I, I've been lucky but I think I think other people can get to see the sort of Greece uh, you just got to get away from the sort of package holiday resorts and the beaches I mean you don't really think of it as, as Greece as being whatever it is, eighty, ninety percent mountainous. But if you if you go to these areas, you do meet people who want to talk to you. You get to see sort of real life going on. When you came, you you did get to know uh, a lot of people, and you threw yourself into Greek society with uh, gusto, from campaigning in the countryside with your mother-in-law, who was a candidate in the two thousand fifteen elections to joining a Karagiozis shadow theatre troupe in Corfu during Carnival of all times. You write that Karagiozis is the embodiment of the Greek character who believes the pure force of his uh, sheer cunning will get the better of the world. Tell us more about this and how you came to, let's say, meet uh, this particular character. Uh, yeah, uh, I love I loved Karagosis. Uh, um, I, I didn't know anything about him, of course. And I first I first saw a performance. Uh, I was just walking through Corfu one night, um, and I came across the tent set up with uh, these strange puppets up there in their raggedy clothes. Uh, and at this point, I didn't really have good Greek at all, uh, so I didn't really understand what was being said. But I still found it incredibly funny, and I, I kind of sat there captured by it and and then later when I got talking to the group behind it it's a group called Kumquat uh, they do Karagosis in Corfu and they found out I played a bit of guitar and so uh, they got me to join the band and we we toured around doing doing performances uh, uh, Karagosis performances and I, I, it was great I, um, I, 
I, I love that. I love that defiant hopelessness of Karagozis. You know, <laughs> at the beginning of every um, every performance, he does that speech where he says, "Tonight we will eat and drink, and then go to bed hungry." It's that kind of that sort yeah. of surreal ordeal of life that uh, Greeks Greeks seem to be so good at. Um, but I, I, I don't. I hope my book isn't like. Uh, I don't want to be one of those writers like. Um, Patrick Lee Fermor or, or Lawrence Darrell. I mean, I like these writers, but they, they seem to sometimes act like they're kind of observing the savage and they say, oh, the Greek is this marvellous combination of blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't really think there is one characteristic uh, of Greek people. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and, I hate, and I hate it when people say, oh, the Greeks, they're all cheats. But I do think that the people, the Greek people do like it when they see a Karagosa show and they see him doing his tricks and you know, tripping up the pompous with uh, his sort of picaresque yeah. thing. Well, they, yeah, I mean, there may well be something in that. I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough to go to quite a few Karagiozzi shows uh, with my son uh, when he was younger. And what always struck me was that, uh, I mean, you had uh, a packed audience full of kids, maybe with their grandparents or parents, uh, absolutely enthralled by what is uh, sh shadow puppet theatre in an era of, uh, you know, uh, computer games, uh, uh, mobile phones and so on, and yet this really basic form of entertainment from, from decades ago was had them absolutely transfixed and entertained. And maybe there is something there about sort of tapping into the psyche of, uh, of uh, our society. Yeah, I, th I think they, they, maybe they get different things. The, the, the children find it uproariously funny, uh, the, the, the sort of all the cavorting going on the, on the screen. But I think maybe the adults, I think they do like the, the fact that, that Garagos is, is doing his cunning and it, maybe it's saying, you know, other other people, other countries might be powerful and Greece might be poor, but, you know, uh, they're clever. Garagos can always sneak his way out of something. As I mentioned before, you, you, you write about going on the camp campaign trail with your mother-in-law during the summer of 2015, which was one of the most volatile periods and election campaigns in recent memory. That would have been a unique experience for everyone, even someone born and raised here. Can you describe some of the campaign highlights and perhaps insights that you gained during this uh, extraordinary period? Uh, yeah, well, it, yeah, it was a, a real volatile time. Um, it was election. It was just after the referendum that Tsipras called, and uh, maybe as you discussed earlier, it's it's not, not always a great idea to to call a referendum as we see in Britain. But uh, everyone was everyone was uh, very worked up about this election. Um, I, I started. I started for. I, I went to a, a big rally for Tsipras in Igalio um, in Athens, uh, and. It felt completely different from the British elections and the British campaigning that I'd seen. You know, there was, you know, British politicians have a few handpicked people for stage managed photo opportunities. You know, here in Italia, there was the square was just full of hundreds of people all shouting and shouting abuse, or um, some of them just having Perea, you know, sitting there with their tipero. Uh, but it, it, 
it was like a real throwback. It felt like really kind of engaged in politics. You know, somebody actually making a speech to to hundreds of people. Um, but, and then then I went campaigning with my my mother-in-law. Her, her constituency is uh, Elia, so it's pretty pretty rural. Uh, so we were going to lots of just tiny villages high up in the mountains, uh, but still, still, the, it was a real feeling of passion. It's the kind of the, the passion that really got to me. You know, even in these villages where you, you have the cafe neos, one for uh, for the right, one for the left wing, and they're kind of shouting over the square at each other and throwing their mujas and stuff. And uh, I mean, politics really seems to matter in Greece. You know, um, you know and and. The hatred of the EU in this election seemed very intense. Uh, I remember one farmer saying to me, um, "We should all get guns, but you're not brave enough in cities." It really doesn't matter. And I think I think people in Greece are more engaged in politics than Britain. Uh, I, I always like it when you drive around the country and you see graffiti on the walls, you know, "New Democracy" or "Kukue" or something. You know, no, no one's going to bother to. to Liberal Democrats in a war back in uh, you know, yeah tribal. I mean, it does it does remind me very much of uh, how uh, Greeks also follow sports, particularly uh, football, which is also something you ex- experienced. Uh, it, it is a very uh, tribal thing, and we often do tend to take things to to extremes. But moving away from uh, politics, you. I noticed that you, you tweeted uh, that your four Greek heroes are a painter, Theophilos, a composer, Manos Hadzidakis, an actor, Thanasis Vegos, and a communist revolutionary, Nikos Beloyanis. Can you uh, give us a bit of an idea of what speaks to you about these uh, men's lives and works? Uh, yeah, well, all of them... In my mind, anyway, they sort of, sort of sum up a sort of Greekness, really. Um, Vegas, I, I love. Um, just like when I saw Karagotis, I first saw Finos films uh, on TV when I didn't really have good enough Greek to understand everything that was going on, but I found them incredibly funny, and, and I love that world that they created, and uh, all the, the same characters that appear. And Vegas was definitely my favourite. Um, no. Maybe as a as a bald man, there was some sort of solidarity for. Uh, <laughs> for, for well, no, no. I, 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 if it puts your mind to rest, I, I, I'm with you on this one. Uh, he, since since I was a kid, I've always been a big fan. Although I have to say that uh, uh, it's one of the few points on which we disagree with our uh, producer Phoebe Fronista because uh, she's not a fan at all of uh, Vegas and uh-huh. uh, she. she yeah, she, she, well, you know that. What can you do? You can't account for taste, really, can you? He, um, he sort of reminds but, me of a, a Cadagosis figure. You know, he's he's always got his bad luck, and he's always thwarted, and he's always chasing some sort of dream. Uh, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of how I see Greece, really. But. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I think he's he's the ultimate uh, Greek everyman, really, isn't yeah. he? You know, yeah. like, uh, we, we we can all see our struggles, our daily struggles through through him, and uh, you know, he he adds that humour. But of course, 
he was also a serious actor uh, as well, and obviously he 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 brought all the elements from his own experience, having been you know exiled as a as a leftist uh, yeah, in his yeah. younger years. He was uh, so, what, what? He, he was he was on one of the islands with my my wife's um, grandfather. Him and Ritzmas and Vegas were were exiled together. So there's another kind of connection I feel, I guess, with, with Vegas. Yeah, and uh, for me, it's one of the reasons that he he could also, you know, when he was playing serious roles, draw on uh, uh, this this kind of uh, depth. That he wasn't just a you know a, a slapstick uh, yeah. uh, comedian. Uh, one of the scenes, one of the roles that stands out for me is uh, he, his part. It's, it's a sort of cameo in uh, Ulysses Gaze by Theogilopoulos, where. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it sounds a very strange thing to say where he stars alongside Harvey Keitel. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Sea discante. Y helada, pecel. Pecel, un san laos. Cálame el ciclo más. Dé que yo pose esquilladas chroña. Anámese a sus pasmenes petras. Y agármata. Que pecel. Vegas is playing a cabbie uh, who is driving Harvey Keitel uh, from Greece to Albania. I mean, you know, the scene sounds surreal enough in itself. And their journey is then hampered by a snowstorm and they share a drink. And Vegas delivers this lament for his fading homeland, for the Greece that is dying, as he says. Uh, and it is a very eloquent uh, uh passage in uh, in this movie and eloquent uh, words that he delivers and the, the scene is very well uh, acted and I think it is very much uh, what he says then, a movie made quite a while ago now, is still very relevant about the, the Greece of today that it's, it's struggle to find its place in the world, its relevance and you know this kind of almost oppressive if you like uh, legacy of its uh, ancient history all around us Manos Hatsidakis, the composer. Uh, I think I think you've discussed this sort of divide between Hatsidakis and Mikistelarakis, and people sort of landing on one side or the other. Uh, yeah, uh, well, in, in my mind, I think Hatsidakis is Greece's greatest composers. Um, I know some people think Theodorakis, but I always find Theodorakis a bit um, strident for me. Uh, Hatsidakis, mm. I think, is. For, is Melodic, but there's a kind of real undercurrent of, of, of sadness there. I think, uh, I, I, as I said, that um, I think you've got to pick one or the other. It's a bit like the Beatles or the Stones, you know. <laughs> Apart from Hatsidakis, you talk a lot about Rebetiko in your in your book. You write a lot about Rebetiko, I should say, uh, and it's followed you throughout your trails in Greece. You relate an anecdote, uh, which is 
well known in Greece. We we hope it, it's not just urban legend about how Grace Kelly saw famed Buzuki player Manolis Yotis performing in Athens in 1961, and he supposedly explained to her that while the strings of an electric guitar vibrated by electricity, the strings of a buzuki are vibrated by the soul. What makes Serbetico stand out for you, Alex? Uh, well, again, it's it's sort of how I like to frame Greece, really. It's kind of how I uh, romanticise it, maybe. I mean, I, I love the idea of the rebelliousness of Rebetico, the the brokenheartedness, that, that pain, the, the surliness, the, the hash smoking, the suit wearing, uh, and the songs, of course, are great. I mean, great songs, but it's, I think it's the image I like most. It's, uh, it sort of goes with playing Tavli and Cafe Neos and Corbeloys. It's, um, of course, in, in the time of the dictator, I think the, the bazooki was, was smashed, wasn't it, as a, as a symbol. So it, it's got that sort of rebellion as well, playing, uh, playing Rebetico. Um, it's, it's, it's just the sort of Greece that I was sort of like. I mean, rather than, you know, cafeterias and frappes and skilladico, it's, it's the kind of side of Greece that I always kind of, sort of tend to go towards. Alex, your book ends on somewhat of a cliffhanger as you ponder what the UK's departure from the EU might mean for your future in Greece. Uh, since Brexit is upon us and since this episode is, to some extent at least, about this issue, let's wrap up our discussion with your thoughts on the subject. Do you fear that Brexit will alter the way people from the UK interact with Greece? Will it make the kind of deep, broad, personal relationship you've built with Greece more difficult? Or do you think those kinds of links will persist regardless of political choices and legal frameworks and so on? Uh, well, well, I hope so. Uh, I think maybe there'll be more of the, the sort of link that um, I have and others have. Um, I mean, uh, rather than, than people easily buying a house in Greece and then staying in some sort of British enclave as they, as they do in some places like in Corfu, uh, maybe the people who come now after after Brexit, maybe they'll be more involved in Greece. Uh, I, don't know, but I mean, obviously, whatever happens, it's going to be very difficult. Um, I mean, when when the UK left the EU, lots of lots of Greek people came up to me and and congratulated me. You know, sort of they all said, uh, "We couldn't do it, but you'll do it for us. You'll bring the EU down for us." 
Uh, and I didn't really like to say that it wasn't really that sort of noble battle, you know, it wasn't really a, a fight against the injustices in the EU. It was more, you know, Nigel Farage in the shiny suits playing on people's fears. But um, one of my friends in Greece showed me all the drachmas he still had, and he said, we were ready, we were ready to, uh, when we had our referendum, we were ready to starve if we had to. And it all seems, it all seems quite a long way from Johnson and Gove and the Leave campaign. But um, on, the, on, the, on the actual day when we finally left the EU, when the UK left the EU, was at the end of January last year, I was at a party with the Ilia Syriza people for the cutting of the uh, Vassalopita. It was only a month late for the new year, which is kind of quite good going for Greece. Uh, I, I realised at 11pm when, when the UK finally left, uh, I, was, I was dancing Zebekiko, which kind of uh, felt a sort of a good symbol, really, uh, for me. Um, and, th and then, th then they, they asked me, they asked me to stand up and make a speech. I didn't really know what to say. So I, I just said, um, all I can say is that I'm sorry that we're leaving. Uh, you know, I said that I, I knew, I know that the, EU was flawed. Uh, obviously, the, the dealings with with Greece uh, shows that. But um, you know, I, I felt the UK shouldn't really be turning tail. I thought, as a big country, we should stay and try to improve the EU. But um, I, I think I think the thing that got to me uh, most was was that now, with with travel being hard and no Erasmus schemes and things like that, uh, I said I said to the, the people there, I said. Uh, you know, people just aren't going to be able to come to Greece and, and fall in love with a, with a beautiful Greek girl. I said, pointing to my wife, who was dying of embarrassment at this point, trying to hide behind a picture. <laughs> uh, but I think that's true. I think, I think that's a very sad thing. Just that, that, that it will be difficult for people to come and, and fall in love and make families and, and make a life in Greece. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's very sad. Well, Alex, uh, I think you're absolutely right, but let's hope that um, you inspire and that there are enough people who want to continue to uh, follow uh, your example and come and experience the country and uh, get, get to know it, delve beneath uh, the surface, uh, walk away from the trodden path and um, not uh, take up just the package holiday and that we can continue to have uh, 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 a broad and uh, complex and uh, fulfilling uh, relationship uh, between the UK and Greece uh, going forward, regardless of uh, whatever else uh, may happen. Yes, yeah, let's hope so. Makari, Makari. <laughs> Alex, thanks very much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. And, uh, uh, well, you know, we, we hope you uh, continue having an interesting journey as far as uh, Greece is concerned. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to talk to you. That was writer Alex Kemp speaking to Nick about getting to know Greece and a whole slew of crazy Greeks. And a few sane ones as well, I might add. <laughs> uh, of course, that's something that... We hope people from the UK will continue to do regardless of Brexit. The same goes for Greece, of course. Um, and I think whatever your views on Brexit and whatever obstacles it may create, there's really no reason for the rich relationships between the two countries, like the one 
Alex has built to stop in the future. I think, Phoebe, that's the hopeful note I'd like to conclude the year on. It's a great place to end the final episode of the Agora podcast for 2020. For those listening who are not aware, before we go, the Agora was launched earlier this year, uh, which means we have a back catalogue, if that's the right term, Mm -hmm. of uh, 15 episodes you can listen to. Some of those, such as our look back at the 10 years since the Greek economic crisis began, or our retrospective on Greece's stunning victory at the 2004 European Football Championships, are pretty timeless. And I guess what I'm trying to say there is that you have no excuse not to check them out in the coming days. (laughs) And remember, you can find us on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And we'd love it if you could rate us and send us your feedback. Before we go, just a special mention to our colleagues at Macropolis who have been regular guests on the podcast throughout the previous months. That's Yanis Mouzakis, Omaira Gill, Alexandra Vuduri, and Yoria Naku. Thank you very much for your insight and your time. If you want to find out more about the political and economic analysis done by Macropolis, you can find us at www.macropolis.gr. And Macropolis is written with a C. And last but not least, we want to say another big thank you to the band that's provided us with our theme song and other music for the show. They're called Burgundy Grapes. They're amazing. And you can find their music on Bandcamp, Spotify, and other places. Check them out. They're great. Absolutely. Thank you to uh, both of the uh, Burgundy Grapes for their uh, uh, contribution and the theme song that we use at the start and the end of the show, which is called Straight Line Blues. That's about it. It's time for us to go. Our final thank you goes to everyone who has listened to and supported the podcast. We really do appreciate it. We wish you all a healthy and happy 2021. Happy New Year. Thank you.